On this episode, I welcome Marshall Goldsmith, one of the top coaches in the world, to discuss how we manage the triggers in our environment so that we can create behavior that lasts. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 196. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly show to help leaders improve their communication, strategy, coaching, productivity, and personal mastery. And we're going to hit on elements of all of those today, in particular, coaching and personal mastery. And I'm really thrilled to be able to welcome today's guest uh, to the show. He is probably the top coach in the world, at least if you ask me who my opinion was on the top coach in the world, it would definitely be Marshall Goldsmith. Dr. Marshall Goldsmith is the author or editor of 35 books, which have sold over 2 million copies, been translated into 30 languages, and become bestsellers in 12 countries. He's written two New York Times bestsellers, including one of my favorite books for leaders. It's on my top 10 list called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, also a Wall Street Journal number one business book. And Marshall's professional acknowledgments include world's number one leadership thinker from Harvard Business Review, 50 great leaders in America from Business Week, and one of the top 10 executive educators as recognized by the Wall Street Journal. Forbes calls him one of the five most respected executive coaches. Marshall, you're here with book number 35. Welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, the pleasure is mine, and this new book is called Triggers. And before we get into what's in the book, I'm wondering why the name Triggers? Well, in my coaching, I originally, when I was young, kind of thought the key variable for success in coaching was me, the coach. But then it dawned on me after a while that, you know, I'm coaching some people that make huge improvement, and some people don't seem to change at all. And more of a variable in the coach is the person being coached. And then I also then realized later that another key factor is the environment around the person I'm coaching, that many of us either become successful or unsuccessful because of the world around us and how we relate and react to the world around us. And that we all make these plans uh, for the future, New Year's resolutions, and seldom do we live up to all the plans. Why? Because Uh, environmental triggers just constantly take us off track. Now, what's a trigger? A trigger is any stimulus that influences our behavior. So as we journey through life, we are bombarded by these triggers that push us in one direction or another. And very important to learn how to read the environment and become aware of this so that we're more likely to stay on course toward becoming the person that we want to be as opposed to the person we end up being. Mm, Interesting. And I I know I never appreciated this until I did some study in organizational behavior, and I know you're a student of organizational behavior as well, and just the power that an organization and an environment does have. And there's an old adage in org behavior, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it, that if you put a good person in a bad system, the system will almost always win. And I'm wondering if you buy into that, and, and, and I'm also wondering what are the kinds of things that we can do to become aware of those triggers and also to be real intentional about how we respond when we get those triggers? Well, number one, I'd say the answer to the question is yes and no. 
uh, are we the subject to our environment? I think in a way we are being created by the world. In another way, though, we create the world around us. Uh, we'll start with a negative example. Someone's a drug addict. They go to rehab. They get better. They sincerely commit to improve. They're not fake or phony. They believe it. They want to get better. But we put them back in the same environment with the same temptations and the same people. Very high probability they're going to be, be exactly what they used to be as opposed to what they want to be. The triggers in the environment are often too much. On the other hand, all of us, we're adults, and we can learn how to read our environment as best we can and, and learn how to kind of break that loop where we're being controlled. The typical stimulus response reaction is there is a trigger. It produces an impulse, and the impulse produces behavior. And what I talk about in the book is if we can start becoming more aware, there is a trigger. The trigger produces an impulse. Then we have a second of awareness. Then we have a choice. We realize we have a choice. Then we behave after making a choice. Then the choice is controlled by us, not the choice is controlled by the environment and the impulse that's triggered from the environment. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about our conversation today, Marshall. I was thinking back to the work of Dr. Stephen Covey, uh, who just did tremendous work with helping people to be more effective. And I think one of the quotes that he made really famous from Viktor Frankl was, uh, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies our freedom and power to choose our response. And our response lies our growth and our freedom. And it that makes so much sense to me. And yet... It is really challenging to recognize that space and utilize that space. And I'm wondering when you're working with people, what do you what do you do in order for both you and the client to really start to recognize that space and that opportunity for growth and freedom? Well, let me just give you an example from the book. Uh, one of the things I talk about is I was interviewed in the Harvard Business Review and asked, what's the number one problem of all the successful people you've coached over the years? And my answer was winning too much. What's that mean? If it's important, we want to win. If it's meaningful, we want to win. If it's trivial, we want to win. If it's not worth it, we want to win anyway. Winners are instinctively triggered by competition and the desire to win. And, uh, and I use a case study, which almost all my clients fail. You want to go to dinner at restaurant X. Your wife, husband, or partner wants to go to dinner at restaurant Y. You have a heated argument. You go to restaurant Y. It was not your choice. The food tastes awful and the service is terrible. Option A, we could critique the food, point out our partner was wrong, that this mistake could have been avoided if they just listened to us. Right. Option B, breathe, shut up, eat the stupid food, try to enjoy it and have a nice evening. What would I do? What should I do? Almost all my clients... What would I do? Critique the food. What should I do? Shut up. Yeah. Now, there's, a case, there's a case in the book that is a really wonderful case. A gentleman sent me an email, uh, and he said, I just wanted to send you an email today and say thank you. He said, I know you don't remember me. He said, I was in your class at Dartmouth five years ago. He said, yesterday I was having a terrible day, and my wife called up, and she was pointing out what a bad day she'd had. And I was just getting ready to point out how her problems paled in significance to my own <laughs> and that I was actually much more miserable than she was. And he said, for some reason, I just breathed and I remembered your class. And I just listened to my wife and I said, thank you for all the sacrifices you made for the family. I love you. And then he said, I spent $25 and I bought her some flowers. And I went home, I gave her the flowers and I said, I love you. He said it was the best $25 I've ever spent. Mm. Thank you. 
Well, I think that's what we need to start really focusing on is before we talk, breathe. Breathe. And then really focus on, what am I doing here? Peter Drucker said it's always good to ask five questions. What's my mission? Uh, who's the customer? What does the customer consider value? What's the goal and what's the plan? Five simple questions. If we have the awareness to do that, then we can pretty much stay on the right track and not get derailed by all the triggers in our environment. One of the things that caught my attention right away, just looking at the cover of the book, is one of the subheadings on the cover is creating behavior that lasts. And you mentioned just a minute ago about like the New Year's resolutions. And you know, it, a lot of us are able to change our behavior and to do it in the short term, but it's that long-term consistency that many of us struggle with. I'm wondering what your research has overturned and the work you've done with your clients that is the difference maker between behaviors that last and behaviors that are temporary. Well, in my coaching, I work with my clients for typically 18 months. They get evaluated by an average of 18 people. And if they don't get better, I don't get paid. So I have a very focused measurement approach toward long-term change in behavior. Which, the by key, the way, you're famous for, of, of, of having the real, the payment come from whether or not other people see results, not you or the client. It's, it's really all about the customer, which I think is extremely cool. Thank you. Well, let me tell you what our research shows, and if any of your listeners would like to get a copy of the article, send me an email, marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com, and I'll send them an article called Leadership as a Context Sport. It's a study with 86,000 participants from around the world. And what it shows is when leaders get feedback and then they talk to people about what they learn, apologize for mistakes, involve their coworkers, and then follow up on a regular basis, they do achieve positive long-term change. When they just go to a class but then don't do anything when they leave from the class, not surprisingly, they don't get better. You don't get better because you read a book or you go to a class or you have a coach. You have to work. I'm sure you know this as well as I do as a coach. You know, you're the same coach. I'm sure you've had clients that had huge improvements and clients that didn't change at all. Yep. Well, why? wasn't you. You probably tried, probably tried harder with the ones you failed on. Yeah, well, and that's why I think is really interesting that you've made the point many times that part of your success as a coach is also being able to partner with people who are ready to move and ready to take action. And that's one of the, the key principles of being successful in coaching is working with people who are ready to take that action. Exactly. Because if they're not ready to take the action, we're just wasting our time. Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard you say that life is incredibly easy to talk and extremely hard to live. And I, I really like that phrase because it, it makes me think about this behavioral change um, and, and, and becoming the person that you want to be, which is one of the other subtitles on the, on the title of the book. Uh, I, I think most of us kind of know who we want to become, but we don't necessarily take that action. And how do you, how do you take the time to understand the difference between the people who are ready to take action and the ones who aren't when you're thinking about who you're going to work with? Well, when I work with people, they have to get confidential feedback. They have to follow up. They have to involve their coworkers, and they have to stick with the plan. If they don't, I just refuse to work with them. I don't judge people. I mean, nobody made me God this week. I just sit there and say, look, you're, you're an adult. I'm an adult. Um, you don't seem interested in this, so thank you for sharing. Goodbye. Yeah, makes sense. And Yeah, I, because I don't get paid if they don't get better anyway, so I have no vested interest in wasting my time. Plus, life is short. Yeah, why uh, would you? Why would you? Yeah, it's it, it's so it's so simple 
it's just it's it's almost easy to miss, but of really taking the time to engage with people who are ready to move. And I think it's a big lesson there for leaders in our community too, of like who is willing to work with you in a coaching framework that you can really help to develop and who's not willing to take that action. And there are a lot of people that are willing to try and so just work with them. And the ones that aren't, as I said, it's not my place to judge anyone. They can do whatever they want to do. Just don't waste my time. I know one of your favorite parts of the book you've mentioned is the wheel of change. I was wondering if you could tell us about that model and how you approach it and why that's such an important part of this book. Well, it's a handy model for coaches. You can use it as a coach. You can use it for life planning. You can use it for team building. You can use it for organizational analysis. It's very simple. There are two dimensions. One is positive, negative, and the other is called change and keep. And if we look at the two dimensions, we talk about four quadrants. The first quadrant is called creating. And if we look at it from a life planning point of view for your listeners, who is the person you want to be in the future? Who is this person you want to create? And I tell people, think about your identity, the way you define yourself right now. Then think about what do you want to change and what do you want to make different in a positive way? And, you know, it's interesting. I've done a lot of work with people on their identities and, I didn't have a brother and sister, and my wife didn't have a brother or sister, so we didn't realize how important our siblings are in establishing our identity. Hmm. For many people, their identity is established vis-a-vis the way the parents define them relative to their brothers or sisters. She's the smart one, pretty one, stupid one, uh, funny one. I was working in a hospital, and I said, how many of you have a brother or sister? And as always, most people raise their hands. I said, how many of you were brought up to believe you were the responsible one? Everyone in the room had their hand up. Oh, interesting. They all did. did. It was eerie. They all were. Then we talked about it, and I said, well, there's a lot of blessings that come with being the responsible one, you know. But then also there's a dark side. So I asked the group, what are the problems with being the responsible one? And people said, the others get to have more fun. They always rely on me. I feel I have to carry around a burden. It was amazing to listen to this. Hmm. And, and we talked about this in the Wheel of Change on that block that says creating the future you want to be. It's not that you want to be irresponsible, but maybe you don't always have to be responsible. Maybe you don't always have to be smart. Maybe you don't always have to be funny. And people talked about it. And when we look at the person we want to be in the future, think about the way we define ourselves now and then say, well, okay, what is a positive change I want to create? The second part of our model is called preserving. What is it about the past that we don't want to change and we want to preserve? And it's easy to get so focused on creating, we can forget about preserving. I mean, as I talk to you right now, I'm in New York, and you can go down to Wall Street and see a lot of people who got lost in creating and forgot about preserving. Mm -hmm. They created a lot of money, and they failed to preserve their families, failed to preserve their health. Why? They get so busy focused on creating something new, they didn't protect what was old and valuable. My friend Francis Hesselbein was the CEO of the Girl Scouts of the United States. Peter Drucker said the greatest leader he ever met. And when she turned the Girl Scouts around, she had a great model, tradition with the future. So what she said is, we can't repeat the past, yet we're going to preserve the traditions of the past that made us great. We're not going to ignore the past and demean the past. That was so wise. So it's important to look at what do I want to create, what do I want to preserve. The third element of the model is what do I need to eliminate. And one of the reasons my book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, is so popular, it talks about what to stop. Mm -hmm. 
teaching people what to stop. Peter Drucker again said we spend a lot of time teaching leaders what to do. We don't spend enough time teaching leaders what to stop. He said half the leaders I meet don't need to learn what to do. They need to learn what to stop. Well, in life, if we just focus on creating, but we don't focus on eliminating, what happens is we become chronically overcommitted. And you see so many people in life are just chronically overcommitted because they're not eliminating. Then the final element of the wheel of change is the hardest for many people accepting. Learning what is maybe not so positive. I don't really love it. I'm not going to change it. And learning to make peace with what I'm not going to change. Very difficult for many people to make peace with what they're not going to change. And I have a a, a whole chapter of the book called uh, IWATT, A-I-W-A-T-T-T. And it's, it's the first part of an acronym. It's for a question. Am I willing at this time to make the effort required to make a positive difference on this topic? Our mission in life is not to prove how smart we are and right we are. Our mission in life is to make a positive difference. Am I willing at this time to make the effort required to make a positive difference on this topic? If the answer is yes, go for it. If the answer is no, take a deep breath and let it go. Most people waste most of their lives on topics they're not going to change anyway. I'm here in my New York condominium, and my neighbor here in New York for a while was a woman named Lindsay Lohan. Oh, interesting. How many zillion hours did people spend waste of their time reading about Lindsay Lohan getting high? Millions of hours were spent on that. Two of my other neighbors were Nick and Vanessa. I mean, they seem like nice enough people, but, you know, people, Nick and Vanessa buy a dog. Who cares? Nick and Vanessa have breakfast. So what? Well, one thing I've learned in my research, my daughter and I did research on this, on happiness and meaning. If you want to have a great life, live your own life. Don't live Lindsay Lohan's life or Nick and Vanessa's life or some athlete's life or some politician's life. They're not losing any sleep over you. Yeah. Live your own life. And in our society, the advent of you know new technology and media has just made this worse and worse. The average kid that's flunking out of school spends 55 hours a week on non-academic media. It's a disaster. Well, very important to back away before we deal with any topic and say, am I going to make a positive difference here? If I am, great. If I'm not, let it go. Let it go. That was one of the things I really found profound from what got you here won't get you there is the focus you have with your clients, especially initially on just what to stop doing. And sometimes it's just one or two things to stop doing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting what you said about the, how we tend to think about other people and the competition and what everyone else is doing. And our society tells us to, you know, to do that. And a lot of our measurements around that, how do you raise the awareness as you work with people what is it that people do that they are able to make that shift to say, okay, I'm not going to live everyone else's path and the media's and whatever else is going on, and how to shift to just live in their own life? And I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm imagining that for some of the leaders you work with, that's a real challenge. Oh, it is. It's a challenge for all of us. Uh, the unique challenge with people I work with is they're so successful that in many ways it's harder to change. Because any human or animal will replicate behavior that's followed by positive reinforcement. If you look at my book, Triggers, there's 27 CEOs that endorse the book. Well, think about those people's lives. They get their butt kissed everywhere they go. Everyone laughs at their jokes. Yeah. They pretend they're smart. It doesn't matter what, how stupid what they say is. Everybody pretends it's smart because everybody's afraid of them. 
Well, when you live in a strange world like that, it's very hard to have any kind of sense of reality. So what I try to do is give people confidential feedback so they get reality. And then I try to help them figure out who they want to be and really try to focus on being that person. Now, I'm going to share with your listeners a tool that takes two minutes a day, costs absolutely nothing, and will help them get better at almost anything. Now, some people are skeptical right now. They're thinking, wait a minute, two minutes a day costs nothing. Help me get better at almost anything. That sounds too good to be true. I'll make a a second prediction. Half the people that start doing this will quit within two weeks. And they will not quit because it does not work. They will quit because it does work. So what I'm going to teach you is it's incredibly easy to understand. It's just hard to do. You know, this is called the daily question process. Here's everyone's homework assignment. Get out an Excel spreadsheet. On one column, write a list of questions that represent what's important in your life. Could be friends and family and health and work, whatever's important in your life. The you that you want to be. Every question has to be answered with a yes, no, or a number. Yes is one, no is a zero, or a number. Fill it out every day, seven boxes across, one for every day of the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. At the end of the week, you get a report card. The Excel spreadsheet will give you your scores. And I tell the corporate people that I work with, if you do this every day, uh, that scorecard at the end of the week might not be quite as pretty as that corporate values plaque up on the wall. Mm-hmm. You do this every day, it's what, you know, we talked about this. You realize life is easy to talk and hard to live. Oh, gosh. Well, you said I it there. Pay, I pay a woman every day to call me to listen to me read my scores. Every day I pay her. Somebody said, why you pay a woman to listen to you read 29 questions that you wrote and answer 29 questions that you answered? What do you pay a woman to do that for every day? Don't you know the theory about how to change behavior? I wrote the theory about how to change behavior. Yeah. That's why I pay a woman to call me. (laughs) I know how hard it is. I have no illusion that I'm any better than anybody else. I have 12 and a half million frequent flyer miles just on one airline. That's an excuse to be out of shape, a bad father, a bad husband, get divorced. Uh, how many excuses could I make with 12 and a half million frequent flyer miles? You know what I've learned? Those excuses don't matter. Yeah. Why do I pay somebody to do this? If I had the courage to do it myself, I would. I just recognize I don't have the courage to do it myself. Why does every Hollywood movie star pay a personal trainer to come to their home every day and make them work out? Well, they know how to work out. They know it's important. They know how to use the machine. Why do they pay somebody to help them? Because they wouldn't do it by themselves. Yeah. yeah. Why do my clients hire me? Well, if they could do it by themselves, they would. And when I work with people in companies, you know what I tell them? I say, how many of you need to be a better listener? And about half the class raises their hand. Then I'll call on one. I said, now, Joe, how many years have you been needing to be a better listener? He'll say, 40. I'll say, raise your right hand and repeat after me. My name is Joe. Say, my name is Joe. I need to be a better listener. I haven't gotten better in 40 years. The odds on me doing this by myself next week are pretty slim. My name is Joe and I need help and it's okay. (laughs) That's great. That's great. And that's one of the things that really, I mean, what you mentioned up front about what got you here uh, won't get you there the like what to stop doing was really 
helpful in that book. But one of the things I really remember is you talking about this, and I know you've done this for a while, which is have that weekly set of questions, not even weekly, daily set of questions that someone calls you and asks you. And right. like, and I've done this too. And, and, and you get to the end of the week and you're like, oh my goodness, what a disaster. I just, I just turned in this week. And, oh, yeah. and, and yet it doesn't matter how much you know about this, like the behavior... It, and we're all human, and we need help. <laughs> that's like the thing that really and, is and interesting. By the way, and it's okay. Yeah, and it's fine. It, like that's okay that you pay someone to do that, and that it's okay for all of us to do that too. In fact, we should be doing that. Well, you know, um, we deify willpower as if somehow people that you know are successful without needing any help are better and wonderful, and people that need help are weak or whatever. Well, that's why people don't do anything. We overestimate the value of willpower. Environment versus willpower, the environment generally wins. And I talk about this in my book. I've also come up with those six questions that are now my first six questions and our new research on the six questions, which I recommend to all of your listeners every day. And these are all active, not passive questions, because we've done a lot of research that shows the value of acting, asking active questions. They all begin with, did I do my best too? Did I do my best too? And the six are, did I do my best to set clear goals? Rather than saying, did the company set clear goals for me? Did I do my best to set clear goals for myself? Mm. Did I do my best to make progress toward goal achievement? Did I do my best to find meaning? Did I do my best to be happy? Did I do my best to build positive relationships? And then finally, did I do my best to be fully engaged? Did I do my best to do these six things every day? Now, we've done research studies, 79 studies with 2,537 participants, Ten days later, 37% of the people say, I'm better at everything. All six are better. Then uh, about 65% said I got better at four out of six. About 88, 89% said I got better at something. About 10.5% said I stayed the same. About 0.4% said I got worse. Hmm. Why? Every day the questions get us to focus on, did I do my best too? And you know what? I can't blame somebody else for that. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. And one of the interesting things, uh, speaking about that, it, that I was interested in, in reviewing the book was some of the research from Kuzis and Posner that you cite on mm-hmm. employee engagement. And so right. many organizations have talked about employee engagement. We've talked about it on this show, but they've kind of looked at it from a different perspective. And I wonder if you could share some of that with our audience, um, just on, because I think that relates exactly to what we're talking about. Well, what happened is I go to a presentation at the National Academy of Human Resources. I'm a fellow in this academy. And they asked three of the top HR people to do a presentation on employee engagement. And they talk about everything companies are doing to engage employees. And they talked about, you know, training programs and compensation and rewards. And it was all good stuff, right, training leaders. There's absolutely zero about what the leaders can do to engage themselves. And I thought, well, you people are missing half the equation. I mean, I'm on American Airlines flight, and one flight attendant's positive, motivated, upbeat, enthusiastic. One's negative, bitter, angry, and cynical. Well, they're on the same plane, same pay, same uniform. The difference is not the outside, it's the inside. That led me to start looking at different forms of research. First, my own coaching, I realized that, you know, same coach, key variable is the person more than the coach. Our research called Leadership as a Contact Sport, 86,000 people. Key variable success is not the program, it's the person in the program. Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner's research on values, it showed the real important variable between values and engagement is not does the company have values. It's can you live your own values. 
And people that felt they could live their own values were highly engaged, and people that felt they couldn't were not, where the company had some plaque on the wall was basically irrelevant. Then other research, active and passive questions, my daughter and I did research on that, showed just by changing questions from passive to active, you get twice as much improvement. And we also found out that people that find happiness and meaning at work tend to be the same people that find it at home. Mm. And people who are miserable at work tend to be miserable at home. They're just miserable people. Well, if the key variable in employee engagement is always the company, then why is it there's such a high correlation between work and home? Well, it's not just the company. The company is important. It's important to realize that the person is just as important as the company. Marshall, I really appreciate all the work you've done over the years. You've really uh, brought awareness to so many people, the value of coaching and of human performance and the work you're doing. And I know this new book's going to really add a lot to that conversation. So thanks for all you've done and, uh, and the service you've given others. Uh, we, we all really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me today. Dr. Marshall Goldsmith is the author of Triggers, Creating Behavior That Lasts, Becoming the Person You Want to Be. Marshall, thanks again. Appreciate it. So it's been about a week since I recorded this conversation with Marshall and now recording this segment. And one of the things that's interesting to me whenever I have a conversation with someone is what sticks with me four, five, six, ten days later. And there's a lot here that sticks with me. And there's two things in particular that really continue to resonate with me a week later after having this conversation. The first thing is, you know, and we talked about this in the interview, but I think it it bears mentioning again. You know, here's here's this guy, Marshall, who is by almost every measure the top coach in the world has written so many books on this. If you talk to anyone in the coaching profession, everyone knows his name. Uh, so many people have such a great respect for him. There's, there are so many Fortune 500 CEOs that you could list, and many of you would know the names of who he's coached. This is a guy who is absolutely at the top of his game by almost any measure. And yet he's got someone that he calls every night that he pays to check in with him to make sure he's doing the things he says that are important to him. And I just think that that is such an important, powerful, at least for me, in my face reminder, I am not going to do it all myself and you aren't going to either. And boy, the sooner we learn that, because I have tried, (laughs) let me tell you, I have tried to do a lot of things myself and I still try some days, but I have also learned that when I get other people to help me with the things that I struggle with, I'm a lot more effective. And so I wonder for you what it is that you are doing that you are struggling with and is not working for you and that getting someone to help you with whatever it is would be of value to your work, to your life, to your family. And if you would do something this week that would make a difference and make a change in that place. And one of the common phrases, at least here in American culture, that's thrown around is uh, people refer to others as a self-made man or a self-made woman. You know, they built this business or this organization on their own backs. And the reality is, is if you go and talk to really successful people by whatever measure you use for success, it's not, they've not done it alone. They may have led the organization. They may have been the visionary, but they have 
been successful because they have built networks of others. They have reached out to others that have empowered them and helped them in situations. They have found strengths in other people. They have built very successful teams. Think about the most successful person you know. I bet they're not, uh, they're not in, uh, in a tower somewhere doing everything by themselves. They're reaching out and collaborating with others, and they're getting help. So why shouldn't we do the same thing? The second thing that resonates with me from this interview is the quote that Marshall said, most people waste most of their lives on topics they're not going to change anyway. Got me thinking about what I was going to be spending my day on. Hope it got you thinking about the same thing. And all the other notes for this episode and all those questions that Marshall mentioned, uh, he went through them pretty quickly, but I've captured all of them on the show notes. So definitely check those out online. And of course, if you get the weekly leadership guide, those will come to you on email on Wednesday as well. So you can use those as reference. And I do hope that you'll share your comments, questions, or feedback with us either for this show or for the next Q&A show coming up, which is episode number 200, just around the corner. If you would like to send in a question that you'd like to have considered for that, go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And a reminder that I'm also continuing to catalog resources for leaders online. That's at coachingforleaders.com slash resources. You can find that there. And I mentioned the weekly leadership guide. Please do join that. The leadership guide is delivered to your inbox each Wednesday and includes my thoughts and recommendations on the best articles, podcasts, videos, and books that will support your development between the shows. And it also includes a brief overview and link to the full weekly show notes. So if you are listening on the go, almost always like I am, uh, it'll give you a good way to follow up on the resources we talk about in the show. And I'm actually going to do something a little different for those of you who get the leadership guide for this week is I'm going to revisit a number of the points from my conversation with Marshall and go into a lot more depth on some of my thinking on those and things that I've seen uh, both personally and professionally. And so if you aren't already getting the leadership guide, it's a great time to join just go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And as a bonus, when you do, you will also get access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others with brief summaries for me on the value of each of those books. And as I mentioned in the interview, one of those is from Marshall Goldsmith. What got you here won't get you there. Uh, the 21 things he tells leaders to stop doing at the front of that book is worth the price of admission just for grabbing that book. So uh, so check out the list, and it'll give you a lot of insight on the other books, too, that I recommend. And there's an 11-page reader's guide that comes along with that and nine minutes of video from me talking about those books. So again, that's all at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And I am so thrilled to continue to feature uh, members from our listening community each week in the Community Member Spotlight. And this week, I am just thrilled to be able to feature Evelina, and she has recorded a brief greeting here. Hello, my name is Evelina Vuolli. I live in Kangasala in southern Finland. I have been listening to this show from the very beginning. Around the time this show was started, I was taking a coaching training, and therefore I searched iTunes for podcasts about coaching, and I found this show. I've enjoyed especially the podcasts about leadership, self-development, and coaching topics. 
One of my favorite episodes is number 143, Accepting Feedback with Sheila Heen. When I have gathered feedback for myself at work, I've used her simple guidance, ask for just one thing. And if you remember the question from the episode, what's one thing you see me doing or failing to do that holds me back? When looking for feedback for myself, I have found this question very powerful. And that's what I like about this podcast series is that almost every week you hear a tip or you hear about a tool which you can utilize in your daily work. Dave, I'm really looking forward for the coming episodes. Keep up the good work. Evelina, thank you so much for supporting the show from the very beginning. I am so grateful for your support. And I also am so uh, appreciative of you pointing out that question from Sheila Heen in episode 143. I'll link to it in the show notes. I've also used that question with clients and colleagues, and I've almost always found I get a really valuable response. So thanks for mentioning that. And thanks for sharing the show on Twitter all the time, Evelina. I so appreciate it. Uh, she, she lives in Finland, as she mentioned, and she listens on Tuesdays because of the time difference on her commute. So thanks for listening. Hey, if you'd like to be featured in a community member spotlight in the future as well, just like she was, I hope you'll take a moment to go to coachingforleaders.com slash spotlight, and it'll tell you everything you need to do there. Thanks to everyone. Have a great week, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week.